You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. All right, Salem, I'm going to ask everybody to stand right now for the reading of our Holy Gospel today. It's found in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice. I want everybody to remember that. And the evil spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. We are continuing in our series, Strengthen Our Hands in Revelation. We are in the season of epiphany, and it is my prayer as your pastor that you continually have those aha moments where things that you've looked at for a long time you see brand new again as if for the first time. It is wonderful when you see something for the first time. It's even more wonderful when you see something you've always seen new again as if for the first time. It's wonderful when two people fall in love with each other and get married. It's even more wonderful when they're celebrating their 30th and 35th wedding anniversaries and can look at each other with all of the history and see the whole thing new again all of the time. Where they're not just saying it was wonderful when, but they're saying it's wonderful now. That's what epiphany is. The moments where God shows you things, some of us will see them for the first time and begin developing a history with Christ, his church, the sacraments, the preaching, the worship, everything that comes with Christianity. And then there's others of us, like myself, who pray every day that God would show me the things I've always seen, now that I have a history with them, that I would see them new again, as if for the first time, but now with a history, a rich depth of experience, loss and resurrection, see it all new again. When we can see things new and when we can see old things as new, it strengthens our hands for ministry, for serving, for rebuilding. Because it is the calling of the church to point out to the world not just the blessings that they could have if they come over here, but it's also our job to show the world the blessings that are filling their life now and they don't even know. They don't even know how important that difficult experience was. It's our job to tell them. They don't even know how important that trial they're going through is. They don't know that they can count it all joy because the suffering of our faith produces endurance. Endurance. 
And endurance produces perfection that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We have to tell them the good news. Not just the good news that they can get out of their suffering, but the good news that God is happening no more or no less in their best and in their worst. It's our job to tell them that. It's not our job to wag our finger and point out everything they're doing wrong. It's our job to tell them that God is so good, those vices can just dissolve and fall away in his presence. We will never see the world as it is. Last week I told you not to write stuff down. You might want to write this one down. We will always, we will never see the world as it is. We will always see the world as we are. You will always see everything that happens to you through you through what is happening in your life, through what has happened in your life, and through the way that you view God. The way you view God will determine the way that you view yourself. And the way that you view yourself will determine the way you view everything else that happens all of the time. I will say this for the next 120 years that I'm a pastor. I'm giving myself some longevity here. There is only one way to read the Bible as a Christian, and that is starting with the four Gospels and letting the life of Jesus reteach us or reveal how to understand the Old Testament and how to understand everything that goes from Acts through Revelation. We don't have a God in the Old Testament and a new one in the Gospels. All the Jewish people, Peter, James, John, Paul, Mary, Mary Magdalene, all of the Jewish people, only ever had what we now call the Old Testament. When they met Jesus, they didn't immediately have what we call the New Testament. They still only had the Old Testament, but they had it new again because Jesus is now the answer to the question of who is God and what is he like. So now when they reread their scriptures or their Old Testament scriptures, when they reread it, they reread it saying Jesus is what God is like. For however long you bear with me in this relationship we have, Jesus will always be preached as being what God. What is God like? Jesus. What language do you think God spoke? God speaks Jesus. Jesus is the action of God. Jesus is the language of God. Jesus is the intention of God. Jesus is the method of God. Jesus is the organization of God. Jesus is how God deals with sin. Jesus is how God celebrates. Jesus is how God does every single thing he does. Jesus is what God is like. The Father gives us Jesus. The Spirit bears witness to Jesus. Jesus bears witness to the Father in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote a book not about himself, about Jesus. So what is God's authority like? 
A few times in this text, the word authority comes up. If you grew up in a certain way of church, you understood authority to be a certain way. The authority the pastor carries, the authority the clergy carries, the authority the pope carries, however you grew up. If you've been paying attention to the social sphere of things, authority is kind of being re-questioned these days because it tends to abuse its power every once in a while. How can the church revision what authority means? We don't throw authority out because authority is deeply needed. There is chaos if there's not authority. But the way it functions needs to be turned upside down by the gospel. And Jesus reveals the way authority functions in this text two times. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. And at the end, what is this? A new teaching with authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of Matthew chapter 7, it says, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. Jesus is saying that we need to walk in authority. We are called to have dominion. But the way, what we, the way that we understand authority should not be like secular authority except the best version of it. That is not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be an entirely different view of authority. I will go so far as to just give you a spoiler alert. The number one full expression of what authority is supposed to look like, if there was only ever going to be one that I was ever allowed to talk about for the rest of my life, which I would totally disobey that and talk about it as much as I wanted to anyway, but besides that, if I only ever had to describe the authority of God one way, it would be the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the primary example of how we are to understand how authority functions. It's Jesus washing feet. It's Jesus saying, this is my body given to you. It's Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is how authority was always meant to function. Let's look at this story, this short story of Jesus preaching on the Sabbath, a man with an unclean spirit in the synagogue cries out, the demonic spirit in him cries out, and Jesus handles it with the calm tenor tone and timbre of his voice. I hope I use the word timbre right. There's a bet going on. We gamble at Salem. I think I just won something. I'll tithe on it. Everybody settle down. Three revelations of how God functions with his authority. Number one, the authority of God brings rest. Number one, I'm about to preach on this right now. Number one, the authority of God brings rest. The gospel writers are intentionally telling you on the Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue. It says immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach on the Sabbath. 
The authority of God brings rest. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. When David, in Psalm 23, in the Spirit, begins to describe the character of Jesus Christ as the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When he begins to prophesy the virtuous character of Jesus Christ, right in the middle of the psalm, he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They don't threaten me. They don't coerce me. They don't transact me. They don't throw me into an arbitrary system that no longer needs God. It's if you do good, good happens. And if you do bad, bad happens. Now that we got the system going, we don't need God anymore. It doesn't do any of that. Your rod and your staff. What does rod and staff mean? Your teaching and your authority. They comfort me. What do they do? They prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. They say, come and sit down and talk with me. You want to know what God's authority looks like? God's authority looks like Jesus, uh, Judas. Before you go and betray the Son of Man, have a meal first. I don't want you betraying me on an empty stomach. <laughs> My grandmother used to never let me leave the house before forcing me to eat a ton of food. And as you can tell, I need to be forced to eat a lot. I don't normally eat a lot of food. I need to be guilted into it. I think it's possibly being overweight why my foot just broke on its own for no reason. It just said, I don't know, I can't take this anymore. I'm done working for you. <laughs> Nanny never wanted me doing anything on an empty stomach. She didn't want me sitting down doing nothing on an empty stomach. Jesus says to Judas, all right, you're going to go commit the worst sin that's ever going to be committed. But before you go, just take something for the road. Here, I, I made you something. This is my body given for you. That's how his authority functions. Watch this. The scribes have been teaching in the synagogue all along. Man, if I could jump around more, I would be right now. I'm about to take this boot off. I won't. I'll hurt myself worse, and it'll be a thing. Thank you. I don't want to be that, that pastor on some YouTube clip that, that goes on the TikToks or something. And then you'd be watching it during the service, probably. <laughs> just play. I'm just going to, but no one even knows who I'm talking to right now. I'm talking to Jacqueline. Rob, Rob. I want everybody to hear this point. Please, God, hear this point. <laughs> While the scribes are teaching this man with a demon that's in the synagogue, the demon never feels threatened while the scribes are teaching. The demon sits in this man quietly while the scribes are teaching. But when Jesus begins to teach, all of a sudden the demon can't take it anymore and says, what have you to do with me? Have you come to destroy me before the time? 
What is it about the teaching of Jesus that makes the demon realize his time is being cut short, but, what, but the teaching of the Pharisees, the demon feels comfortable enough to never have to make himself known? Jesus says of the Pharisees, they tie heavy yokes on people's burdens and never lift a finger to help them. But take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does the word yoke have to do with in this Hebrew culture? It has to do with teaching. Pharisees had yokes. Yoke was a way of describing a particular Pharisee's teaching. Jesus is saying, take my teaching on you, for my teaching is easy and my burden is light. Their teaching is heavy because it binds and it guilts and it condemns and they can never stand up under it and they never lift a finger to help the guilt go away. But take my teaching because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Everything that you fail in, I will pick up off of you and put it on the cross. That's what I do. And that's why the demons flipped out when Jesus started talking. And what does the demon say? You have come to destroy us in Mark. And in Matthew, he says, you've come to destroy us before the time. What time? That time. The cross. The demons knew on the cross, Jesus would ultimately destroy them. The demon knows that the cross is the moment when he loses authority over this person's life. But why does he say now? of Jesus. Have you come to destroy us now? I thought you were going to destroy us then. Because there's something about the teaching of Jesus that only speaks of the cross. Maybe this is why Paul said, I've come to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Every time I open my mouth to preach, all I will preach is Christ and him crucified. Every lesson, every moral, every ethic that I give is going to be couched with the understanding that if you fail, Jesus will pick it up off of you. And that's what makes demons all of a sudden start to yell. So when a pastor preaches mercy and grace and people get upset because he's not calling out all the evil, that might be a demonic spirit rising up in you because only demons get agitated over mercy and grace teaching. I just want, every, I just want to make it clear that in this room, somebody said, oh, snap. Somebody said, oh, somebody said preach. Just want you to know your worship team is affirming this message. <laughs> and also know that the authority we receive from God, like the way that God operates over us is the way that we're supposed to operate in any area where we have authority. What does Paul say? He says in Corinthians, that there is someone among you has, who has committed, we won't get into it, a despicable sexual act, a horrible sexual sin. And what does he say to do? He says, take that person and remove them from the church. And what does Paul say? Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why does Paul say that? Is Paul in cahoots with the devil? Do they have like this partnership on the side, like a side hustle where it's like we really love Jesus, but on the side, Satan, you're much better at destroying people's flesh than Jesus is. 
What is Paul saying? Paul is slapping the legalistic fundamentalists in the face saying, you deliver them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Well, how can Satan destroy flesh? The point is he can't, but Jesus is out there where you think Jesus isn't. He was crucified outside the city gates. He is the scapegoat that went into the wilderness with all those other demons from the Old Testament. Jesus is now in the place where those demons used to be. And when Paul removes somebody and sends them outside the camp, he's also sending them into the presence of God where they will be restored and be brought back into the camp. That is how his authority, his authority brings rest. He rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. But he doesn't do it before he affirms Peter and says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. My father has. His rebuke only shows up under the banner of his acceptance. Jesus does not rebuke what he doesn't accept first. He accepts Peter and then rebukes him. He frees the woman from her accusers and then says, go and sin no more. He only disciplines the sons whom he loves. That's what it says in Hebrews. Any discipline comes from a father who's already accepted you, who's no longer in court with you. You're no longer, it's no, the game is no longer 0-0 zero, zero every day, and you got to play again every day to win. That is not how the love of God works. Peter, tonight you're going to deny me three times. But I have prayed for you. So that when you return, you'll strengthen your brothers. You're going to deny me, but my prayer has run faster and is out ahead of your denials. My prayer has leapt over your denials and is on the other side of it. So when you go to the place of denying me, my prayer is already there for you, and it's going to bring you back, and you're going to start the church and strengthen your brothers. The prayer and love of Jesus runs so much faster than our sin that when our sin finally arrives, Jesus has already made atonement for it. That's how he uses his authority. It brings rest. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Point two, the authority of God brings healing. Jesus heals the synagogue by casting out the person from it. Right? Is that what he does? I see people writing down. That was sarcastic. Don't write that down. I love, I love this worship team more than anybody could ever possibly imagine. You Jesus does not kick the man out of the synagogue. He kicks the evil out of the man. He leaves the man in the synagogue. He doesn't say, what have you done to open yourself up to this kind of demonic oppression? He doesn't say, who have you been hanging out with that doesn't have a right spirit? He doesn't say any of that. He says, come out of him. And the man is left whole, and the demon is gone. Jesus, the authority of God, brings healing. Discipleship is healing. Punishment, 
from God is healing. If punishment wasn't healing, then all he would ever do is punish because it would never change us to not commit that sin again. Would you agree, I'm asking everybody in the entire room, Lydia, I'm asking everybody, would you agree that whatever God does, he succeeds in doing? Fair? Franco, fair? Got a thumbs up from me in the balcony? So everything God does will succeed. Non-abusive parents discipline their children so that their children would develop virtue and character, correct? You're, the discipline, the punishment, the correction is meant to change the child. So if everything God does succeeds and punishment is meant to change somebody to being better, then God's punishment and discipline of us must change us to the point where we no longer need the punishment or the discipline one day. Which means if people believe that God is going to punish people forever in hell, then that must mean that his punishment's never going to work. But you all just said his punishment always works. I'll leave that out there for you. You do the math. Discipleship is healing. Correction is healing. When God corrects you, when he disciplines us, read Hebrews, when he disciplines us, it's not punitive. He's not just saying, you did this, so now you get this consequence. He's healing the thing that we did. Healing it. Not merely punishing it, but healing it. If all he did was punish it, then we would leave with the same capacity to do it again, and all God would ever be is our punisher. But he corrects us in a way that heals. Where is that illustrated in the story? The man convulses and falls to the ground. Sometimes the, the discipline of God will do that to us. It'll cause us to cry out in a loud voice. It'll cause us to say, why? It'll cause us to say, you hate me. Like every one of us said to our parents when they disciplined us or grounded us, you hate me, you hate me. And now you realize, oh my gosh, they were right most of the time. His Authority brings healing. His authority never says, my relationship with you is on the line. Ever. His authority only ever says, you're so accepted. I will love you as you are. But love you so much, I won't let you stay as you are. Our authority needs to function the same way, wherever we have it. Some of us have it in large capacities, some of us have it in smaller, but wherever we have authority, that authority is not used to demand or coerce or intimidate or scare or threaten. It's meant to serve at a cost to itself. 
so that the one under the authority becomes more of themselves. I'm going to say that again. Our authority is meant to function in such a way where it offers its full self so that the person under our authority could become their true self. The authority of God brings rest, not timidity. We don't have to walk on eggshells with God. We don't have to hope that he's in a good mood today. We don't have to hope that we get it right or else. That is not, that's how our authority works. That's how our power structures work. Our power structures exert themselves, and when they're not obeyed, they exert themselves louder and harder than they did the first time until they're obeyed. But it's never obedience. Intimidation is not obedience. Getting somebody to do what you want them to do because they're afraid of you is not love and it's not obedience. You scared the hell out of them, and now they have no choice. That is not how God ever operates, ever, ever times. He never operates that way. His authority, listen to me, creates the possibility in us to obey it. His authority is so loving and so meek and so mild and so low to the ground that it actually creates in us the yes that it requires. His authority works in our life, and it actually creates in us the inner yes back to it. His authority creates possibility. I'm getting ahead of myself. Everybody stop making me get ahead of myself. Final point. The authority of God brings rest. The authority of God brings healing. And finally, the authority of God brings friendship. I just finished a book, I told you uh, last week, I just finished a book by Dr. King, and in the book he says, compassion and empathy are slightly different. Compassion says that you feel bad for what I'm going through. Empathy says you feel what I'm going through. He said, compassion will change the hurt person and help them to feel better, but empathy will change the person who hurts people because they'll feel what they're doing. Compassion will change the person who gets hurt. I'll say it this way. Compassion will help heal the abused. Empathy will help heal the abuser because the abuser will feel what they're doing to other people. That's true friendship. My cousin uh, texted me this morning. He's moving. Um, Cousin just does real well for himself down in Manhattan. Good for you, Brett. I'm glad you make a ton of money. He says to me this morning, he goes, <laughs> he said, when you moved recently, how much did you tip the movers? I'm like, I gave Ian pizza and beer. <laughs> I said, cool, man. I'm glad you got movers. I don't know where I was going with that. Oh, yeah, friends. Right, friends. <laughs> I'm like, like really, really lost myself for a second there. These guys actually bore the burden of my furniture. 
they felt what it was like to carry my stuff for 12 hours straight on a time limit. My foot broke. Your leg went weird for a second. Remember, it just started shaking, and we were like, it's fine. Everything is fine. They bore the burden of my stuff. That's what friends do. Friends bear the burden of each other's weights and cares. They don't just say it's going to be okay. They help it be okay. They get underneath it with you and lift that mahogany furniture that you got for free and quickly realized why they gave it to you for free is because they didn't want to carry it out of their own house. Because it's no longer in my house because somebody didn't like it. Where am I again? Oh, yeah, friendship. When Jesus heals this man, the man cries out with a loud voice. When Jesus removes the demon from this man, the man cries out with a loud voice. That's Mark chapter 1. Mark knows what he's doing in Mark chapter 1. The first time Jesus heals somebody... The person who's possessed screams with a loud voice and then begins to convulse. At the end of Mark's gospel, and Mark knew this when he wrote chapter 1, it says this, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the face of the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you read on, the earth begins to convulse. Don't let this be missed. When we needed demons to be cast out of us, we scream with a loud voice and convulse. But then Jesus actually takes the place of the man screaming with a loud voice and screams with a loud voice himself. And the earth, along with Jesus, convulse as he dies. Jesus doesn't just remove a burden. Jesus gets under the burden and feels it exactly himself. We cry out with loud voice. Jesus cries out with a loud voice. We say, where was God? Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We say, I can't go through this anymore. Jesus says, let this cup pass. Our ground produces nothing but thorns. Jesus wears them on his head. We get wounded by people. Jesus gets wounded by people. We die. Jesus dies. Jesus only raises because we're going to. This is how his authority works. His authority brings rest. His authority brings healing. And his authority brings friendship. Now, if it's okay, I would like them to put up the final slide here. And then the circles that go with it. And leave it on for a moment so people can see this. I didn't realize this until I stepped back at the end of my sermon prep. And I looked at the three lines that I was going to preach from. And I saw something that I think might be one of the most important revelations for myself and for our church. The authority of God brings. The authority of God brings. The authority of God brings. Growing up in church, I was always taught that I'm supposed to bring things to my authority. I'm supposed to bring respect. I'm supposed to bring honor. I'm supposed to bring obedience. I'm supposed to bring time, talent, treasure. 
But if you look at the authority of God, all the authority of God ever does is bring. We would have nothing to give if the authority of God didn't first bring. The authority of God doesn't make demands. It makes offerings. The authority of God doesn't demand. It offers. And then it says, now that you have what I have, now give it back to me in mutuality. That's what we do with the Eucharist. He gives us the ground. We take stuff out of the ground and make it into bread and juice and offer it back to him. We offer back what he gave us first. And then he offers it back to us again, and it's more than it ever was. So he gives us seeds in the ground, grapes and and wheat. We turn it into bread and wine. We give the bread and wine back to him. He gives it back to us, and it's more. But authority gives first. You can't bring a first fruit if he didn't produce something first. You can't bring a tithe if you don't have it. Tithe even if you don't work. That's not how the tithe works. That's magic. That's not gospel. That's sorcery. That's not gospel. Tithe on what you want to make. No, that's manipulation and coercion and witchcraft. That's not how it works. You don't sow to get. You sow to give. That's how it works. God is not a slot machine where we're trying to wait for the three cherries so that we can win something. (laughs) So many things are happening in here. God gives. He gave us life. What does he ask of us? Our lives. But he gave it to us. Authority gives first. And then authority always gives back. Authority gives. Jesus gave life. Then he said, now offer me your life. And then he gives it back to everlasting life. He gives us wheat and grapes. He says, now give them back to me. And then he gives them back in the form of the Eucharist. He says, I'm going to give you honor. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to call you good before you ever did anything. Now honor me. And when we honor him, he honors us right back. This is how authority works. You cannot demand of somebody what you haven't already given them. Abusive authority demands what it's unwilling to give. That's it. Worship team. God gave you talents. Let's come up here to give it back to him. It's just that simple, Salem. That's it. The authority of God brings rest. The authority of God brings healing. The authority of God brings friendship. To summarize, when you wake up each day, there are already new mercies for sins not yet committed because God gives forgiveness before he gives anything else. When you wake up, the court case doesn't start over again. When you wake up, the game from yesterday, you don't run it back, and now it's 0-0 again. The game is over. Jesus has won. We don't play the game anymore. We celebrate the victory with him. Let's come to the table of the Lord. If you have bread and juice. 
on the night when our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. He took bread that the disciples gave him. Oh my gosh, Ian. I have no bread. Can you please? It's right there, honey. There should be a little box there. No, it's all right. You, you use the juice cup. I got the real stuff. Come on, man. <laughs> Just ruined the entire sermon. And one, one's like, yo, brother, I'm the man of God, okay? So I got, you, you, drink, you drink the juicy snack one. <laughs> yo. It's over. Everybody just signed off. The game has ended. We've, we've lost for all of time. There's nothing. There's nothing. Uh, welcome to the final Sunday of Salem Tabernacle ever. We should just hang out after this because it's over. No, I'm just kidding. He took bread, cool, cooler bread than the one that John has. He took bread. That he asked the disciples to prepare for him. He asked the disciples to prepare a meal, but the meal that they prepared was given to them by God in creation first. Then they prepared a meal and gave the meal to Jesus. And Jesus said, this is now my body which is broken for you, and this is my blood which is spilled for you. Now I'm giving it back to you so that you can eat this and drink this in remembrance of me. And so here's why we pray this. God gave us the means to make this meal. We now offer him these gifts. And now we pray, Holy Spirit, descend on these gifts that we've offered you. And make them for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. You gave us life. We are doing our best to offer that life back to you. Forgive us for the places where we haven't offered it fully to you. Sanctify us and heal us that we may worthily eat this meal and become for the world the body of Christ, the church. I just want to say to anybody who's struggling in your life, first and foremost, your view of God is that of an angry, punitive, my way or else kind of God. I just pray, Holy Spirit, right now that that dissolves and that Jesus would radically redefine God. God is Father. God is Good Shepherd. God is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And I know from experience, brothers stick very close. I pray that that God would become, I pray that there would be an epiphany for anybody who thinks that God is a judge every single morning. That that view would dissolve and they would see the good shepherd, the friend, the father. And I pray for those who are just stuck in vices that they're using to numb their life. That your love would convulse those vices. That the vices would cry out in a loud voice, what have you to do with me? Did you come to destroy me? And that those vices would hear Jesus say, yes, I did. I came to destroy you so that you don't destroy my people anymore. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. This is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. 
And this is the cup of Christ, the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. And just so everybody knows, even what John has is the body and blood of Jesus. Because you're cool enough to make it so. Would you partake with me this morning? Salem, I just need you to know, I need you to know that we're, we're already praying again about how we're going to reopen the church. If it's going to be one service or two, um, we're hoping to do that, uh, let you know about that in the next couple of weeks. I want you to know God's doing something with this worship team inside this room with nobody here. God is forming something. When you, when you come back, what you're going to feel in this room is something completely different than you've ever felt in this room before. It is going to be so charged up and crazy in here. It's just going to, it's, it's going to be nuts. It's going to be great. And so keep praying. Keep praying that this room is a thin space. Keep praying for our worship team. Keep praying for me and Jacqueline that we, we will be what we need to be for when the church reopens again. So Salem, love you so much. See you Tuesday morning at 6.30 a.m. on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for prayer. I love you so much. Have a wonderful day. Grace and peace. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.